BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Frank Bruni. I'm Michelle Goldberg. And this is The Argument. Today, our guest is writer and historian Anne Applebaum. We'll talk about how authoritarianism became so appealing to conservative thinkers in the 21st century. Anne Applebaum's latest book is Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lore of Authoritarianism. It's part memoir, part history. The story of people she once called friends, anti-communist intellectuals and conservative defenders of liberal ideals, who during the Cold War fought for things like an independent press and a free market. In recent years, these same friends have become foot soldiers in the rise of nationalism and authoritarianism in the West. I read the book and found it utterly fascinating, even though I disagreed with a big part of Applebaum's premise. As I wrote in a recent column, there's no mystery in the right surrender to authoritarianism, because for many of the people Applebaum describes, it wasn't a surrender at all. It was a liberation. And, not surprisingly, disagrees, writing on Twitter, it is just as incorrect to write, quote, conservatism always contained the seeds of authoritarianism, as it is to write progressivism always contained the seeds of authoritarianism. It is an honor to get to debate it with her on the show today. And welcome to the argument. And thanks so much for talking to me. Before you explain why you think my argument about your book is wrong, maybe you could just give a sense of the case that the book is making or the story that the book is telling. So first of all, to be clear, the book doesn't really make a case. Mm -hmm. This isn't a political science book. It doesn't have a thesis. It's not an op-ed column. It rather is a reflection on a series of events that I took part in or I was aware of or people that I knew over the last 20 and 30 years. My previous books were works of history, you know, in which I did lots of research and then I tried to show a problem from lots of points of view. And this is really the opposite of that. It's a very narrow and subjective view, you know, including some events that I have a role in or I'm somehow implicated in or biased about. It's about four countries, mostly about the United States, the United Kingdom and Poland with a big chunk about Hungary and some reflections on Spain. And it looks at the evolution of the right in all of those countries or the thing that used to be called the conservative movement or the center right or the Tories or the, the Polish right or the Republican Party. And it observes that some people who used to think they were on the same side 20 or 30 years ago now are not. I start with a party at my house that took place in 1999. It was not a fancy party. And no, it's not a book about parties or catering. That just was the metaphor that I used for this. No, it's, very, it's a cinematic intro. <laughs> and I try to explain that some of the people who were at that party are now people who I no longer speak to and many of the other people at the party no longer speak to. And the reasons are not personal. They're political. We're now all on opposite sides of this very profound political divide in Poland, which is a very profoundly polarized country, um, some ways weirdly like the United States, in which people live in alternate informational universes and don't speak to each other and have a completely different view of the world. And so the book was a kind of reflection about how those deep divides happen, what causes polarization. There are a few historical references. I talk about the Dreyfus trial in France, um, which was a, a similarly polarizing moment in French history. I talk about division over Brexit, which was different in many ways from the Polish division, but also caused everybody to get mad at each other. And I try to show, you know, what were some of the deeper reasons for these changes. Again, the book has no thesis. It doesn't argue that there is one explanation, and it looks rather for historical echoes across countries rather than tying everything together in a neat knot. You know, I spend a lot of time, like you both do, writing op-ed columns, you know, that have to end with a single paragraph saying X is Y, and <laughs> therefore we should do Z, you know. Mm -hmm. And it was really a relief in this book to write something in which, no, sorry, I'm not going to tie up all the loose ends for you. You're just going to have to figure it out yourself. 
You know, it was really striking to me your use of Fritz Stern's The Politics of Cultural Despair to sort of diagnose some of what you were seeing on the contemporary right. Stern was a history professor and a refugee from Nazi Germany who wrote about conservative intellectuals. So I also used the politics of cultural despair to try to diagnose the contemporary right. But I did it in a book that came out in 2006. So I'm just going to put this quote out there that I used to try to explain what was going on in George W. Bush's reelection campaign in 2004. The ideologists of the conservative revolution superimposed a vision of national redemption upon the dissatisfaction with liberal culture and with the loss of authoritative faith. They posed as the true champions of nationalism and berated the socialists for their internationalism and the liberals for their pacifism and their indifference to national greatness. And so I guess this is maybe the heart of our disagreement, right? I mean, I think I agree with you, obviously, about the horrors of Trumpism, but I do see it as more of a sort of evolutionary, maybe inevitability of trends that were certainly present in the American right through most of my adult life, as opposed to this real break with um, what had previously been known as conservatism. One of the things I saw specifically when I was covering George W. Bush's reelection in 2004 was a lot of talk about the quote unquote homosexual agenda as a kind of totalizing ideology. So when I've read what you've written about the use of anti-gay prejudice almost as a kind of conspiracy theory in Polish politics. That felt that seemed really familiar to me. So I'm not really disagreeing with you about that. I don't think it's incorrect to say that some of the seeds of what we're seeing now were present 15 or 20 years ago. I think my disagreement is that I, you know, I believe that the anti-communist movement, which is remember, I'm actually the book begins at a slightly different moment, not in 2007, but in 1999, and it's reflecting on an earlier period, which is the late 1980s and early 1990s. I'm arguing that the anti-communist movement in that period had different components, and people were anti-communists for different reasons. Some of them were anti-communists because they believed in realpolitik and they were worried about Soviet nuclear weapons, okay? And some people were anti-communists because they cared about democracy and human rights and the rule of law. And there were some people who were anti-communists because they were Christians and the Soviet Union was Marxist and atheist and therefore they were against it for that reason. And one of the things that I trace in the book is this idea that that coalition over time break up. I think I even say at one point that it was probably artificially held together by 9-11, which kind of kept some people on the same team for longer than they might have been anyway. I mean, you could even argue that it was breaking up by the end of the 90s um, in the United States. And the same is true in Poland, where the anti-communist movement in Poland had people in it whom you would describe as left-wing. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of anti-communist children of communists and so on. As these different bits of it broke up, um, some people went in one direction and some people went in another. So I'm not, I'm not actually disagreeing about that. I mean, I think what I'm disagreeing about is your implication that this was somehow inevitable, you know, that of course, you know, the right would end up like that because the right was always authoritarian and that's what it was about. That I disagree with. If you'd been looking at the left in the 1980s, you know, you might have been able to make that same argument. I was actually looking for a copy of my own book, which I can't seem to find, um, <laughs> which is my, my, my history of the Gulag that was published in 2004. Right. And in the introduction to that book, um, I talk a little bit about the communist tolerant part of the Western left, mm -hmm. which chose to ignore and dismiss and downplay the existence of Soviet concentration camps because it was politically inconvenient. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a piece of the left that was always also charmed by authoritarianism and tempted by extremism. Well, that's also in my, my new book a, a little bit too. But if I'd said at that time, well, of course, it was inevitable that the left will therefore from this moment develop into an authoritarian movement, I would have been wrong. I mean, it could have been that those elements took over the left and you know, actually in one or two countries they did. Right. The point is that these movements were, particularly in the United States, where we're cursed with our two-party system, these movements are coalitions. And I was simply dissecting what happened to the right-wing coalition or the center-right coalition that I felt myself to be a part of and, you know, clearly no longer do. 
I simply don't think that Trumpism was some kind of inevitability that it had to be that way because, you know, that was the way the party was going. That there are these elements of cultural despair, of deep pessimism about American society, of fear and anxiety caused by modernity and technological change and social change, you know, that that is all present on the right right now is, of course, it's absolutely true. I write about it all the time and it's, you know, it's, it's part of my book. What I don't agree with is that that retrospectively colors all anti-communists as proto-authoritarians, which would be ridiculous. Oh, I don't think, no, I mean, I don't, I don't think it, I don't think it retrospectively colors all anti-communists as proto-authoritarians. I just think, and I think that this comes out in your book, that the segment of that coalition that was genuinely concerned about human rights and democracy is smaller than I think people would have admitted at the time. Uh, sort of, I mean, depends on which country and it depends which time we're talking about. You know, a lot of this is also to do with, you know, who won power and how and when. The anti-liberal or anti-democratic part of the Polish right, for example, was a fringe minority for 25 years, which had very little influence on Polish politics and was not even really visible. And even the Law and Justice Party, which is now the ruling party, it was very briefly in power once before for a year and a half. And it exhibited a much more limited and narrow and less ambitious version of what it's doing now. It it was still then a coalition that contained a wide range of people. Even the the law and justice president, who was the one who died in the tragic plane crash, was somebody who cared a lot about the rule of law, for example, and and Polish judges and so on. It's hard to imagine him presiding over this destruction of the judicial system that's taking place now. So that's around 2005. Even then, they were the truly anti-democratic, anti-pluralist, piece of the party was a fringe piece of the extreme. And that it has now moved to the center is the drama of the current story. And I I kept on wondering as I was as I was reading you, when you look at the group of you on the right, conservatives, however you want to call yourselves, when you look at your kind of wide group of friends and acquaintances, not just in Poland, but also in Britain and the United States, and I assume you had some in Hungary as well, and you kind of observe who drifted readily, or, or at least eventually, you know, toward the lure of authoritarianism or some of these more nativist administrations and governments, and who, like you, resisted or like the never-Trumpers here. What are the kind of characterological or socioeconomic differences? What distinguishes the people who decided to go along versus the people who said no way? So first of all, to be clear, there are no sociological differences. I mean, we are talking about elite people. We're talking about educated, you know, sophisticated people who were not damaged by Poland's post-communist resurgence, you know, quite the contrary. I hesitate to generalize because one of the things I liked about this book is that unlike as in writing columns, I didn't really have to generalize. I could just focus on a a few people. (laughs) But very often in Poland, a lot of the people that I'm talking about are people who for one reason or another became dissatisfied. I mean, so for example, in Poland with with the post-communist state. And sometimes they were dissatisfied for political reasons, and often they were dissatisfied for personal reasons. So they personally had not prospered to the degree to which they felt they should have done. And so there is a quality of resentment, a feeling that the wrong people have have risen to power, the wrong people are achieving prominence, you know, our business class is not the right kind of people. So there's a, a feeling that the wrong people have somehow won or are somehow in charge. And this is the, you know, you can look back through history and this sort of classic profile of the revolutionary is somebody who's part of the elite, but not on top. (laughs) So look at Lenin. Lenin came (laughs) from the Russian aristocracy, but the lowest rung of the aristocracy, right? And then his family even dropped out of the aristocracy after his brother was um, sentenced as a revolutionary and his fantastic resentment, even though he's not from the working class, you know, he's not the poorest part of the country, but he has this feeling of resentment against Russia's rulers. I mean, and that's not a, okay, the Russian revolution is a more complicated story than that. It wasn't all about Lenin's personal psychosis. So I'm not going <laughs> to, I don't want to keep going with that analogy. I'm just saying that if you, if you do look back, you do find that um, a lot of radicals often fit that profile. And, you know, I think even in the U.S., you know, Laura Ingram, who I write about at some length, isn't somebody that I do know that well. She wasn't, she doesn't really count as a friend. She was just somebody I met a few times and I have, we have some mutual friends and so on, but I don't really, I'm not close to her, but she is somebody who I know was always very resentful of the fact that her achievements weren't more recognized. So she also has that quality of resenting the elite, which she is also somehow part of. I mean, to say that she's not an elite 
is ridiculous. I mean, she's... Did you ever read her book about about what an elite is? I read several of her books. I can't remember. She wrote this book in 2003 where she basically defines elitism as a state of mind that sort of has nothing to do with your with actual class. class. Yeah, right. So it's kind right. of this bizarre, phantasmagorical version of elitism in which um, a person with the right politics can never, by definition, be part of the elite. Right. So she is she has defined herself as somebody, even though she's an ex- she's extremely wealthy television presenter with millions of social media followers and, and a huge fan base and a large house and all that, you know, she's nevertheless defines herself as being somehow anti-elite, which is, of course, ridiculous. Right. But, but this is a common, <laughs> if you're asking what people like that have in common, this is often it. There's some element of resentment or feeling of outsiders. But do you think she's changed? Because in in your book, you sort of associate her with this optimistic post-Cold War milieu of Reaganism and people who felt like we won and now we're going to go on to keep winning. Whereas when I look at her history, I mean, starting with Dartmouth, where she is the editor of this school newspaper with Dinesh D'Souza, where They become famous for trying to humiliate gay students by sending an undercover reporter to the gay student groups meeting and publishing excerpts of things that people talked about. You know, her book in 2003 is obviously extremely resentful and nationalist. Like, I guess I don't see a Laura Ingram that was at one point different or better than the one that we see today. No, I'm not sure that Laura Ingram was ever different or better. Her views about the world have certainly changed. I mean, she has a much different view of American foreign policy. She has a different analysis of American history than she once had. You know, she's not a, I'm not intimate with her. I don't know her well enough to tell you exactly all the components of it, although I I tease it apart a little bit in the book. But, you know, that she was an anti-communist, you know, at a time when other people on the left weren't is true. And so... I, you know, probably gave her more credit for that than she deserved in the 80s and 90s. But to me, that was a really important quality. And it remained an important quality for me for a long time. And I want to say something very cynical and ask something very cynical. But these last years have made me pretty cynical, which is, you know, you used the word, the verb prospered before. You're just talking about Laura Ingram's views have changed. I find myself wondering as we talk about resentment as a motivating factor, you know, the size of the chip on someone's shoulder, to what extent do they actually have convictions that change in ideologies or are they just grabbing onto the winning formula that puts them on the top of the team or in the winner's circle or make sure that they prosper? I mean, are they just kind of choosing horses rather than, in fact, evolving ideologically? Some of them. I mean, some of them are deeply cynical. So, you know, one other person who I talk about in the book who won't be familiar to American listeners is a Hungarian woman called Maria Schmidt, whom I suspect of deep and profound cynicism. She's somebody who has, she has a number of both business and political interests in Hungary, um, and she's made great efforts to stay on the right side of the of the current ruling party and is now one of their chief propagandists, even though I know, you know, that in earlier eras, she was more doubtful about them. And I suspect her of being, you know, profoundly cynical. So one of the things that I tried to argue in the book is that, again, you know, the human personality is very complex and people can be motivated by more than one thing. And some people are motivated by an idealism or an ideology or politics. And some people are motivated by personal ambition. Some people are motivated by resentment. Some people are motivated by the pleasure in seeing their enemies squirm. And some people are, as you say, profoundly cynical. And I will, you know, and sometimes those qualities dominate at different moments. I mean, I actually end the book with this discussion of cynicism and nihilism. And I say that this is the really dangerous sentiment for liberal democracy is that. Because once people become cynical and once they think it's all a game and it doesn't matter who wins, then you do begin to lose the virtue of the state. And then you really are open for all kinds of extreme politics. But yeah, I mean, are they cynical? Some of them really are, yes. But but there's also a relationship, right, between kind of doubt and fanaticism. If you're going to insist on something that on some level you know not to be true, it's likely to make you more histrionic and more sort of uncompromising. I think there's a quote in the book that I'm not going to be able to recite to you off the top of my head, but it's a it's a quote actually that comes from a guy who was a young communist in Poland in the 1940s, Jacek Czernadl. 
And he described in a famous memoir that he wrote years later, he described what it felt like to be talking to a crowd of people. People are shouting and cheering and, and he was lecturing the crowd, you know, whatever, you know, support our Marxist state. I mean, I'm just making up what he said. I don't remember the, the exact thing. And he, and he writes, you know, the more I was shouting, the more I was doubting what I was saying. You know, did I really believe what I was shouting? And I felt I had to shout louder, not just to convince the crowd, but to convince myself. I think I was talking a little bit about something else, which is just rank opportunism. You know, we, we were talking moments ago about Laura Ingram, one of her Fox News colleagues, Tucker Carlson. If you go back and you listen to Tucker Carlson 15, 20 years ago, he doesn't sound exactly or really all that much like he sounds now. And his voice has evolved in relationship to where he's gotten the largest audience, the most traction, the most power. And Donald Trump, I mean, does any one of us really believe that Donald Trump has an intrinsic and abiding ideology versus a set of hunches and instincts about which direction to turn in to maximize the adulation and the purchase on power? But actually, Frank, I mean, I would say I actually think that racism is pretty deep in Donald Trump and is as close to a sincere belief as he's possible of holding. So actually, Tucker Carlson, um, who I didn't write about, um, but is a probably a better example, as you say, of somebody who has changed very profoundly. David Frum has a thesis about Carlson, which is that it was because what he really, 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 really always wanted to do was be on television and be good at television. He tried various <laughs> television projects and they kept failing. And then finally, he hit on the formula that would win him you know, millions of fans. And that was this kind of strange, racist, nationalist, nativist language that is designed to appeal to mobs of, you know, like thinkers in, in America, and that that was what finally brought him fame and glory. And that's why he's sticking with it. And so, yes, that would be an example of really sort of pure opportunism and, and, and a kind of nihilism. And that, as I say, is one of the enemies of good politics. But where would you put Trump, Anne? Is Trump more Tucker or more Lenin? <laughs> Actually, a bit of, <laughs> golly, that's a, not a question I ever thought I was going to have to answer. It's not a question I ever thought I'd ask. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, actually, you can see elements of both. I mean, think about Trump is somebody who he's very rich. He's on the front page of tabloids. And yet, is he ever really accepted, you know, by the New York elite whom he resents? Is he accepted by the real movers and shakers, the real bankers and businessmen in New York, do they see him as a real player? I mean, no, they don't. I mean, for all I know, he may be deeply resentful of the people who look down on him because he was vulgar and, and so on. So he he may well fit into that sort of, in that sense, the Leninist category. And at the same time, be someone who, as Michelle said, is somebody who just has this instinct for kind of negative publicity. You know, he understands how to how to move crowds and how to appeal to really base instincts. So he's somebody you could see both of those aspects in him. Now, one of the things that I think is really valuable about your book is its kind of international scope. So it's not just about what happened to the Republican Party. But it, to me, one of the questions that keeps, you know, this is maybe a provincial question, but compared to, you know, maybe if Hungary is the worst case scenario out of all of the countries that you're writing about in this book, possibly followed by Poland, these are both countries where, as you write about, you know, there's sort of a conspiracy at the very center of the government. Where do you see the United States on that trajectory? Like, how far are we from Poland or how far are we from Viktor Orban's Hungary? So this may sound very bizarre, and I accept that it's my own weird provincialism and it's my strange perspective as an American who lives at least part of the time in Poland. I think the United States and Poland are really similar in the sense that um, I do think that Trump came to power also on the back of a conspiracy that all of us, you know, including me, but also many other people underrated, which was the conspiracy of birtherism. Mm -hmm. And, we, you know, it's now sort of forgotten because so many things have happened that this was the moment when he really broke into national politics was by being the kind of the loudest spokesman for birtherism. And what was birtherism? It was the argument that the president of the United States is illegitimate. You know, he's not even American. And this argument had a tremendous amount of power and was believed by an enormous number of people. Some I saw a statistic once, it's between 20 and 30% of Americans believe this to be true. Now, think about what that means. You know, if the president is illegitimate, that means that everybody, the media, the courts, the Congress, the civil service, everybody is lying to you. 
So the entire state is covering up this fact that the president is an illegal outsider and should not be president at all. If you believe that, okay, then you are ready for all kinds of radical changes and all kinds of radical politics because you have come to doubt all of the institutions of your democracy. Oh, that's really interesting. So that creates much more of a kind of, um, I don't think that I've thought before that there's such a through line between birtherism and then the deep state conspiracy. Oh, absolutely. No, no. I mean, the, the use of conspiracy theories and conspiracy thinking by Trump is very similar to the way this was used in Poland and where it's been used in other places. And, and by the way, throughout history, okay, the Bolsheviks were great conspiracy theorists. And the, the way in which he used it and the way in which he has consistently sought to undermine public trust in, in, a, in a range of institutions, the deep state, you know, the fake news media, the judges who are really Mexicans, they're not Americans, all that language used over and over. I think some of it, I think he does in a calculating way and some of it is instinctive. I mean, this is how he, this is genuinely, I think, probably how he sees the world. All of this has built up and amplified the existing lack of trust in American society and help to undermine people's faith in institutions. I mean, if you think American democracy is so rotten that we had a president for eight years who wasn't even American and it was all lied to us, you know, then you're willing to see all kinds of things overthrown. Then what do you care about, you know, the State Department being decimated or the inspector general of the CIA being fired? Why should you care? And all those people, it's so obvious that all of it is corrupt. Um, and this is something that Trumpism has in common with with the, the way politics are done, in, not just in Poland, but in Brazil and in many other countries. And I ask you this because you are a student, a scholar of authoritarians and authoritarianism, and because I suspect it's a question that's on a lot of our listeners' minds. Donald Trump, let's say he loses in early November. Do you think there's a real possibility that he rejects the results and what does that look like? And if he wins, what do you suspect the next four years look like? So those are two different questions. I mean, first of all, I think it's almost certain that he is going to question the results. Um, he's said so already. Uh, he's been asked point blank, you know, will you will you accept the result? And he's refused to say yes. So I think that's a that is a clear possibility. Um, it's something everybody should be prepared for. It may be that there is a very easy solution to that if it happens. And the solution is, I think Biden himself has said, well, on January the 20th, he'll walk into the White House and the Secret Service will escort Mr. Trump out um, because, you know, Trump, you know, will have trouble fighting the um, fighting the legality of it. But that doesn't mean that he can't cause an enormous amount of trouble or do an enormous amount of damage by campaigning around the country between November and January and saying that the election was rigged and can't um, seek once again to use conspiracy theory to move people and, you know, prepare them for some other political project still to come. And so, yes, it's possible that I do that. I should also say that I also think it's possible that he'll try to cheat in other ways. I mean, I think the, the you know, the attempt to undermine absentee ballots, the the hints that he might undermine the work of the post office, you know, so that it couldn't deliver absentee ballots. I mean, all of that is preparing both to try and cheat and to and to prevent people from voting and also to begin to make the case that the election was rigged. So, so it is highly possible he'll do that. Second question. Well, no, sorry. Your second question was about, you know, what if he wins? If he wins, are we, is that it? Are we on a fast track and express train to authoritarianism? So if he wins, I mean, the main difference between the Trump's first term and Trump's second term will be the kinds of people working for him. Because if you remember, in the early part of his presidency, there were still people working for him who were, who believed they were there to do something good and they were there to protect the institutions of the United States. And, you know, although I've criticized James Mattis, you know, I do accept that he thought that what he was doing there was you know, making sure that the army was okay and that elements of U.S. foreign policy, like our relationship with allies, were maintained. Um, and, you know, a number of people who worked for Trump in the beginning had that commitment to um, to the institutions and to democracy. In his Trump's second term, there will be no such people. Um, and so the, 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 the government, the, the institutions will be run by people who's, who are intent on destroying what they can and who will do so rather 
um, aggressively. And yes, I do think that would cause an enormous crisis in American democracy. The other scenario is Biden wins, uh, Trump leaves voluntarily or is escorted out. Um, what then happens to the, to the authoritarian fervor that he has cultivated during his four years when he's out of office? So this is a really interesting question and one that I have been talking to people about. You know, most think that, and these are, these are mostly ex-Republicans, but people who know the party quite well, most people think that everything depends on how he loses. So if he loses by a lot, if it's a wipeout, if the Republican Party loses the Senate, and if it loses even more seats in the House, then it is possible that a part of the party leadership will say, we're right, that was a big disaster, and that was a really bad idea. And, you know, Trumpism was a road to nowhere, and it's a road to an ever-shrinking base. Um, and therefore, there will be a an election or an argument inside the party, and, you know, a new kind of leader will be chosen. And then, as somebody said to me recently, and then there's at least a chance that we get rid of this authoritarian or we we push to the fringes, this authoritarian streak in the Republican Party. It doesn't mean that we will, but it means that then there's a chance. If the election is very close, on the other hand, if Trump loses very slightly, um, if the Republicans retain the Senate, and if the party still feels that this kind of rhetoric and this kind of language is a is a winning ticket, then the next presidential candidate may well be Tucker Carlson, you know, or Don Jr., you know, or Ivanka, you know, or someone who, you know, or so if it's you Tom know, Cotton, we're lucky, right? <laughs> if it's Tom Cotton, you're lucky. No, Tom, or Tom Cotton, or Mike, Mike, <laughs> or Mike Pompeo. You know, or I mean, Ugh. there's a range of people who will be competing for the, you know, the role of the next and possibly more efficient and more intelligent Trumpist um, leader. And so then, you know, then we are in a real national conundrum because then we have one political party, which is is um, is not dedicated to playing by the rules of the game. And then we have the kind of, you know, the kind of polarization that we've had will continue and get worse. Um, and then we will, you know, we will find ourselves in the position of having a every four years, a kind of electoral moment of crisis. So obviously a lot of these, you know, trends that we're talking about in other countries predate the election of Donald Trump. But I'm curious how you think the, I mean, collapse isn't the right word, but the kind of damage incurred to the ideal of liberal democracy in America has empowered authoritarianism in other countries and how, you know, the sort of fate of this election will then, you know, the echoes that will have in in other countries that have basically argued that, right, that that liberal democracy has failed, that it was that it was a joke that, um, right, that its time is over. So the election of Donald Trump, the re-election of Donald Trump, would have an enormous negative impact around the world, and it would absolutely empower other authoritarians, um, both sitting ones, whether in you know in in, in Russia um, or in China, for that matter, um, or in the Middle East, um, as well as aspiring ones um, in other countries that are current democracies. Um, and this is both by the power of example. Um, you know, Trump and his language um, are, are are quoted and imitated by people all over the world. I mean, for example, his use of the expression fake news to undermine the media is one that is been picked up and, and repeated by, I mean, dozens of other authoritarian leaders or would-be authoritarian leaders. I mean, the other part of the story is that the, the authoritarian right, the new radical right around the world has deep links. There are deep financial links. There are deep links, um, kind of organic links on social media. These groups of people speak to one another. They share one another's memes. They communicate in different ways um, across borders. Um, and the influence of the American alt-right on the, so I don't know, the European far right or the international alt-right um, is quite profound and vice versa. I think the um, they influence one another. And there is no question that the re-election of Donald Trump would you know, embolden and motivate those different groups who, who, as I say, are, are speaking to one another all the time anyway, and help them, you know, propagate their ideas further. 
Anne, can I ask you a, a meta question, so to speak? Um, in the very title of your book, Twilight of Democracy, and I think sort of the subtext of a lot of the discussion that we're all having here today is this notion that the trend line, the trend line is away from democracy. The trend line is toward uh, very scarily authoritarianism. I, I just want to kind of play devil's advocate, maybe in a very hopeful vein. Poland just had an election. Uh, I believe, you can correct me if I'm wrong, it was the closest election since the end of communism. And in fact, the authoritarian government barely won. You go back to 2016, Trump got almost 3 million fewer votes uh, than Hillary Clinton did in the popular vote. He won only after Russian interference, only after a late-in-the-game assist from Jim Comey, and, and possibly also because so many people were so convinced the outcome was predetermined in Hillary Clinton's favor that they didn't rouse themselves to vote. And since then, almost every uh, metric, almost every measure, almost every election has suggested the limits of Trump's appeal. Is it possible that what we're seeing in Poland, what we're seeing in America is, at the end of the day, a blip? He asked, hopefully. I mean, maybe, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I too hope that that's the, that's the correct interpretation <laughs> and our country and, and other countries have overcome even worse crises before. I mean, you know, the civil war was a pretty big blip on the history of American democracy. You know, it was a moment of total collapse and somehow we nevertheless recovered from that, you know, with some caveats. You know, I think that one of the reasons I wrote the book and one of the reasons I concluded it the way I did is that what I don't want is for Americans to become complacent, for us to say, well, our democracy is so great and so strong and our constitution is so fantastic and we're, you know, a superpower. I don't have to try that hard to make sure that, you know, everything goes well in our country and it's all going to go back to how it was eventually. And anyway, Poland is far away and they're Central Europeans and they have nothing to do with us. I mean, I really believe that it is it is that conviction of inevitability, which was the big mistake, I should say, of my entourage or my milieu, um, you know, my friends um, in the 90s. There was a kind of complacency that now that we're on this road to democracy, nothing can take us back because that is wrong. Countries do reverse themselves and they do cease to be democracies. And we are going through a really extraordinary moment of technological and informational and demographic and, you know, social change and changes makes society very volatile and, and all kinds of outcomes are possible. And I don't want people to be complacent or certain that we will somehow go back to everything being the way it was before. And you don't have to really do anything about it or worry about it because it's that feeling of inevitability that turned out to be wrong. So I think we will end it there. And even though we have some disagreements about the nature of pre-Trump conservatism, it was a pleasure to read The Twilight of Democracy. It's a fascinating book, and I'm thrilled that you came on the show. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for your time and your thoughtfulness. No, thanks for talking to me. As a global leader in experiential education, Drexel University encourages students to both gain knowledge and find new ways to turn that knowledge into action. Drexel is proud to be one of 39 private institutions in the nation to achieve recognition by the Carnegie Classification of Institutions of Higher Education as an R1 research institution, affirming this Philadelphia University's commitment to discovery and innovation. Experience what education can be at drexel.edu. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. And we're back. Michelle, what did you think? So I think that she's extraordinarily brilliant, obviously. You know, and it's it's often funny when you disagree with someone on Twitter or in a column and then you end up talking and you find out you agree more than you might have thought. And I should say that, you know, Anne Applebaum is someone who her willingness to kind of call out authoritarianism on the right certainly didn't 
begin with Trump. Um, something I probably should have brought up is that she was, you know, at one time a big fan of John McCain who refused to vote for him, I think very honorably in 2008 because he put Sarah Palin on the ticket, right? And Sarah yes. Palin's rise to prominence was in a lot of ways a premonition of what we're what we're living through now. And so, you know, one of the things that is so interesting about this moment is how you end up being in political coalitions with people that you never could have imagined, right? It's such a reminder of how long life is, you know, that it would have been hard enough for me to imagine maybe being on the same side as an Applebaum in 2000 or 2003, you know, never mind David Frum and, and Bill Crystal. But one of the things I wrote in my piece is that, you know, I, I think a lot of people on the left are very, very suspicious of never Trump conservatives. And I really admire them because they've really sacrificed something to stand up to him, you know, and it, they've sacrificed more than I've had to or more than people on the left have had to just in terms of, you know, the fissuring of personal relationships, professional networks, right? I mean, it's, I think it's really not easy to turn your back on the social and political world that you've lived your whole life in. What you just described or what you just talked about is actually where I get my hope during these dark times. And what I mean by that is you're right. You and Ann Applebaum agree more than you disagree. And that becomes clear when you talk with each other. Uh, and you have made, um, you know, temporary, whatever kind of partnership with people whom you didn't expect to. I think that one, if I'm going to be an optimist, one thing that could come out of all of this and, and our conversation with Anne uh, reacquainted me with this optimism is that we can focus on what unites us more than what divides us. Understanding what a threat Trump is, being so deeply offended by some of the divisions he's exploited and the ways he's governed, has reminded so many people from various points of the political spectrum of what they have in common and of how, how overlapping their fundamental values are in so many ways, don't you think? I guess, but I really wonder if that's more of an elite phenomenon, right? That sort of people who are, you know, people who make their living by kind of arguing and writing and the search for truth and good faith argumentation, you know, are sort of necessarily in this moment on the same side, you know, instead of kind of politics, I've written this before, instead of politics being a war of ideas, the people who take ideas seriously are a side in politics. You know, I think if you look at the country as a whole, I don't see how you look out in America right now and say that this is a country where people are more aware of what unites them than divides them. I mean, to me, it looks like a country that's coming apart at the seams. I mean, it looks and feels that way. And yet, I, I don't think it's just an elite phenomenon. I mean, if I flash back over the last couple of years, you know, once Trump had been in office for a while and the offenses had mounted and mounted and mounted, the number of times somebody, you know, in a store, in a fast food restaurant, wherever, has kind of set an aside, an aside of disgust that lets me know that, that they've, they've developed the same reservations or, or, or deep concerns that someone writing op-ed pieces and simply using a different vocabulary um, is expressing. I mean, that, that happens all the time. And I look m more recently, and I think this has been so fascinating and hopeful, I look at the polls uh, regarding how Americans feel about Black Lives Matter and where that puts them in opposition to Trump. And, and I see people, I, I see a, an overwhelming majority of Americans coming together with the same idea of justice and rejecting Donald Trump. Uh, and, and no, I think, I think you're, I think you're right that Donald Trump has created, and I think Jamel wrote about this, right? That, that Donald Trump has created, I don't know if it's a silent majority, but he's definitely created an, a fairly solid anti-Trump majority. You know, I, I, again, when I want to wear my optimist hat, I think Donald Trump in the long run, if things turn out better and not worse, I think Donald Trump has shown us who we don't want to be. And maybe, maybe, you know, we talked about at the end of the conversation with Ann, we talked you know, in what I found to be a very fascinating manner about various scenarios. Trump barely loses. Trump loses big. Trump wins. You know, beyond all of those, there's, there's the scenario where he loses, we move on. 
And again, this is my hope. This is me at my most hopeful and optimistic. Call me Pollyanna. Um, we remember what Donald Trump did to us. We remember what he showed us in terms of the kind of America we don't want to be. Uh, and maybe we're the better for it. So I think that's certainly a possibility, right? I mean, if you look at all the reforms um, that you saw after Richard Nixon, I mean, most of them stood up fairly well until Donald Trump dismantled them. But there was, you know, not just this huge wave after um, this huge Democratic wave that followed Nixon's resignation, but a whole flurry of lawmaking to try to solidify accountability, solidify transparency, solidify democratic institutions. Um, I think it's going to be really, really important that people keep pushing on that. When Barack Obama first became president, there were people who wanted some sort of accountability for the people who had both misled the country into war under George W. Bush and also the people responsible for the financial crisis. And I understand why Obama, facing all these interlocking crises, thought that it was the time to, you know, sort of look forward rather than backward. But I think that was a mistake um, in retrospect, and it would be a fatal mistake if, you know, inshallah, Biden becomes president. I think it'll be really important to have something. I don't know if it's a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, if it's a commission in the Justice Department to sort of expose both those, you know, the kind of instances of corruption and lawlessness that we maybe half know about. And I'm sure there are a lot that we that we don't know about. Right. I'm sure there are a lot of utterly corrupt phone calls with foreign leaders, you know, as bad as the one with the president of the of Ukraine that we just haven't heard about. And so I think it'll be really, really important important to figure out the places where norms need to be replaced by laws. I, I suspect we will be excavating the muck of the Trump administration for decades to come. I just hope that excavation be begins sooner rather than later. But we we should probably uh, we should probably wrap it up there, Michelle. It's just you and me this week, which means 50-50 chance that you're going to be the one doing the recommendation. And I just toss the coin heads. It's you. What's your recommendation this week? So I am going to recommend, it's not a new book. I'm going to recommend an old book that I've been thinking about a lot recently and that I recently reread, um, Milan Kundera's The Joke. So I don't know about you, but I have a lot of these books that I feel like have been really formative and yet at the same time I can barely remember. But I decided to reread The Joke recently because you know, we've been or I've been at any rate embroiled in this discussion over um, cancel culture, you know, which even though I don't like the phrase cancel culture, it seems somewhat inescapable and sort of what it means to be publicly shamed, what it means for a ideological movement to en enforce its boundaries. And when I see people kind of cast out, I often think of this book. What is the storyline of the joke? Okay, so the storyline of the joke is there is a young communist in Czechoslovakia in the 40s, you know, a very ardent communist, but somebody with a sort of slightly ironic temperament who has a crush on this girl who is kind of earnest to a fault. And he teases her by sending her this jokey postcard. Hold on, I'll just get the actual line. I have it underlined here. So he teases her by sending her this jokey postcard that says, optimism is the opium of the people. A healthy atmosphere stinks of stupidity. Long live Trotsky. And this postcard, this joke, ends up completely derailing his life. He's drummed out of the party, drummed out of the university, sent to go work in the mines, right? So in some ways, this is, you know, not at all um, comparable to what we talk about when we talk about cancellation, right? Because the, you know, the sort of horror of it is that it has the power of the state behind it. And sometimes I think that people my age and older, those of us who grew up on Juan Kundera and books like it, there are certain rhetorical modes that signal to us authoritarianism. And we see them on Twitter and maybe overreact because what's so, what was so frightening about them was that they had the power of the state behind them. And yet at the same time, I think he sort of really captures the 
emotional experience or what I imagine to be the emotional experience of being sort of drummed out of a movement that you identify with. Because, you know, the significant thing about Ludwig is that he really is a communist. And so he really does identify with the people who are casting him out. He doesn't really want to be a dissident. I'll just quote this line, you know, I came to realize that there was no power capable of changing the image of my person lodged somewhere in the Supreme Court of Human Destinies, that this image, even though it bore no resemblance to me, was much more real than my actual self, that I was its shadow and not it mine. I think that line captures some of what happens when people become reduced to either the worst thing that they've ever said or someone's impression of the worst thing that they ever said. It's so interesting to hear you describe it, Michelle, because uh, one of the more celebrated novels to come out in the last six months and one of the novels I most recently read is called A Burning. I'm going to probably mispronounce the author's name for which I apologize, but her name is uh, Mega Majumdar. Um, and it's set in India. And it is, I'm realizing how timeless, what stamina the story you're describing from the joke has. It is, again, about someone who with a single communication, miscommunication, call it what you will, is branded forevermore and becomes uh, a convenient object of analysis, demonization, caricature, whatever, for the society around her. Um, so this is clearly a story um, that regardless of epoch, of, de- of decade, um, speaks to certain eternal verities of human nature. I didn't, I didn't, I had heard of that book, but I hadn't realized that that was what it was about, that now I'm going to, we can make that a recommendation too, because I'm going to, I'm well, going to order recommenda- it. But, but this, this is your week. Your recommendation again is? My recommendation is Milan Kundera's The Joke. That's our show this week. Thanks for listening. The Argument is a production of the New York Times Opinion section. The team includes Phoebe Lett, Paula Schumann, and Pedro Rafael Rosado. Special thanks to Brad Fisher and Kristen Lynn. See you next week. <laughs>